the place in my soul that got rocked with through psychedelics. That place never goes away or is diminished. In fact, it's probably more so because through time, you know, at the time it seemed to me, I was like 18 when I was <laughs> on the bus, when I got on the bus, that- Literally and figuratively. Yes. <laughs> At the time, it seemed when we were doing the acid tests and, you know, the Grateful Dead was playing, that was our band, and we were traveling around doing these events, that that the um, ripple effect of shifting consciousness was going to just go across the planet yeah. and the world would really change rapidly. And what, ha- what happened? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here so, we are in 2019 and uh, right. things didn't work out quite like you'd hoped. So some things totally did change and yeah. some things are in the culture that were not then and there's been a lot. But um, so when I was saying it's, it's even more now, I think it's even more important to embody and share the best of those values. Mm-hmm. How does a 19-year-old get swept up with Ken Kesey? 18. 18-year-old. <laughs> how, how, does that, how does that happen? I was... At school at UC Berkeley at the mm. time. and Okay, I'm connecting the dots. Right. And my first, so this was like the, when I came into Cal as a freshman, mm-hmm. uh, which was October of 64, within a few weeks, the um, free speech movement started and I was involved in that right from the get-go. So that was a pretty tumultuous and interesting first semester of college. You had those inclinations. You, it, you didn't totally. get corrupted the minute you went to Berkeley. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. I went to Berkeley because I really was political and I re- wanted to be a part of the solution of changing mm-hmm. the world through the political system and through music, which was my other passion. So I thought, you know, because I was raised with Kennedy and at that time there was the uh, um, there had been the Alliance for Progress Alianza you know working with South America seeing what kind of partnerships could be forged in our continent mm. and um, I had gone to Stanford for the summer and studied the Latin American studies and I, I just thought that politics was really going to change and that the you know civil rights everything was going to I just thought the the follies of the culture that I had been born into and that we had sort of inherited yeah. were now that we'd seen the injustice up close, we were, that we were really going to change it. And, um, and you know, at the time, the uh, regents of the University of California were the powerful business interests in California. And they, it turns out, you know, were hooked in with the J. Edgar Hoover and mm-hmm. a lot of the federal powers and sort of military industrial conflict. Sure. And and so as the students became more active and aware on campus and started organizing picket lines in, in Oakland at the Oakland Tribune, uh, which was owned by William Nolan, who was a who was a, cha- a regent of the University of California, or you know picketing the um, the car dealerships on Van Ness mm. that uh, you know had unfair hiring practices. I mean, all of the business here, if they weren't, they were, first of all, complicit in their own hiring practices, but then they also, some of them had, were parts of chains of of uh, theaters or other um, chain businesses that in the South were still segregated. It's like picking up the rock and watching yes. the bugs scurry and just exactly. seeing how deep everything is and how, how much everything's connected. Yeah. And so, you know, when the students started protesting like the free speech movement you know there was a big backlash from the um you know the the powers the big business powers and it was a big wake-up call because i was Mm. sort of an innocent um and i grew up in san francisco and had liberal parents in a bubble i was you know i mean you know i just couldn't imagine that anybody would once they saw what was right and soulful to do that they would wouldn't just give up some power to have things be right. I was actually went to Santa Cruz, which I think uh-huh. is probably spiritually pretty, pretty similar in a lot of ways. And I kind of think of, of that as kind of getting away as, as being in a bubble in a strange way. It had sort of the opposite effect on you. I mean, you know, I, you know, I'd seen it, you know, in witnessing, you know, yeah. the newspapers of the civil rights movement sure. or something, but I hadn't personally experienced, you know, being beaten up like I was in Sproul Hall by the Oakland cops and taken to jail. And I, you know, I was, I just turned 18 a few weeks before. And I also hadn't experienced before the sense of the power of unity of people when we get together for something mm. that is important. 
and to see Mario Savio, who was, you know, one of the main spokespeople of the free speech movement, stand on a car in Sproul Hall Plaza and so eloquently express what we were all feeling. And he wasn't the only one, but he was pretty captivating and, and brilliant. So you felt like at that point that obviously the momentum was behind you and that you had the ability to do it. Um, I guess what was the game plan? You know, how were you going to change the world? I mean, right off the bat, what we were trying to do was keep our free speech rights on the campus because I had gone to Berkeley with the, what drew me there and kind of away from the Palo Alto area where mm-hmm. I had gone to my last part of high school and gone yeah. to Stanford for yeah. the summer was the kind of political foment and cross-firing and, and all the different organizations. And I wanted to like hear what everybody had to say. And, you know, you could go on the Berkeley campus in those days and there'd be card tables all around Spell Hall Plaza with, mm. with people like the anarchists and the SDS and, and, you know, student nonviolent coordinate, violent coordinating committee and the socialists and the mm-hmm. anarchists or whatever, you know, you could just sort of go talk to people yeah. and hear their ideas. And it was sort of this free flow of ideas that I was really excited to be in the middle of because I wanted to kind of take a look at mm-hmm. everything from political theory to courses of action. How do we make a difference in the world? So I was, that's why I went there was for those tables and those conversations and people on those soapboxes. And I just wanted to hear that. So right away when the campus police came and took the tables away, I was like, no, wait, that's not okay. This is literally yeah. why I'm here and you're yes, exactly. that away from me. When you say, what was the plan of action? Yeah. You know, the first plan of action was to to say that just because we enrolled in this university mm. and walked onto the campus doesn't mean that we had in any way given up our free speech rights that are guaranteed to citizens of this country. So we were fighting to, to keep those, you know, to keep all those channels open. And I think... You know, the university was sort of this big brother and was thinking, well, you know, we're just going to keep these students. You can't be an activist mm-hmm. if you're a student. You're just going to be a student. And I think that, you know, we, we won that, you know, we, 800 of us plus were arrested. When does the bus roll up? So that, that, that le- later that year in the spring, I knew some people that had taken some psychedelics mm. and I was, I was interested. I, I didn't do, I didn't ever really drink. I wasn't, I've never been a person that liked alcohol and I don't, I'm really not a smoker of any kind, but psychedelics was interesting. That was at that point a, a less essential part of that movement on campus that the drugs. Yeah, that really was kind of a separate thing. Yeah. You know, the, the political people for the most part weren't so drawn to the kind of psychedelic realm but they weren't tuning in were, turning on and dropping out quite yeah, yet that, you know yeah it was you know but an lsc was legal then too or yeah. let's say it wasn't illegal so it was legal <laughs> in that sense you know and so i had heard about it and some people that i knew who were really interesting philosophies teachers and um you know people that i knew that were into kind of more things spiritual or martial arts and things like that were were um exploring psychedelics yeah. and i was interested I, i've always been interested in anything to do with consciousness. I did yoga as a young person and, you know, I just kind of always interested in how do we, what is this reality? And, and does, does each of us have our own view and story and what's common underneath that? Is there something, you know, what, you know, what is this energy we call life? This is kind of a way to, to, to jumpstart that. Right. Because, you know, it's easy to be, um, invested in or stuck in or just limited to what we came up in Mm -hmm. so to actually have that dissolve and kind of see that this reality that we is malleable and there's so many energies and so many kind of levels and and and, uh so many ways to experience Mm -hmm. living or being you're kind of asking around on the fringes trying to see how to get some of the stuff well it was, it sort of just came, you know, I didn't have to look. I mean, it was just the people hard, that but, I yeah. happened to be, you know, yeah. meeting were exploring that and I, I was interested. So I started doing that in the spring of 65 and, and had some really profound experiences that were life altering. Because granted, like maybe this is sort of the Tom Wolf effect, but it seemed like a, a formal process. The, the acid test at the time, the whole, I don't know if ceremonial is the right word, but there is like a, there was a whole process for it when they were kind of bringing it around and turning people on. Well, it was definitely an exploration, a group yeah. exploration. And I think making, having the container of the acid test, you know, having the container of, of a place where people could 
if they wanted to drink the electric Kool-Aid and have a place where there was music and there was lights and there were, you know, that reality was very... When you look back from now, it doesn't seem like much, but at the time, I mean, just even to have a strobe light was completely revolutionary, Mm. right? So lights, sound, all of that, and a place where if somebody wanted to kind of let go of the, their reality or personality or, or, you know, just melt, there was a safe place to do that. Yeah. And, and you could kind of just be dancing energy with music, um, with great music. And you could just kind of let your molecules flow. You almost need a chaperone or, you know, I know if you're taking like peyote or something, it's the idea of like having a, a shaman, you know, having somebody who can like help you through it if things go bad which they sometimes do well i think that if for you know people now um to have to always make sure that you're in a safe space mm-hmm. and you have at least somebody there if not more than one somebody's yeah that's helping make a container for you and, and that you can be within people you trust and that and i guess i always think it's really good to be around nature but you know at the time we were really exploring this we didn't have much of a rule book. You were making or, it up, yeah. You know, I think now there's a lot of research that's been done, and there there are um, there are things that have been sort of learned culturally about yeah. this exploration. Did Kesey seem to know what he was doing at the time? I mean, people were you know following him around. Well, you know, he, he sort of yes and no. I mean, it was really a group <laughs> exploration, yeah. and it was. I mean, Kesey was paying attention as much to everyone else that was Mm. on the bus and learning, you know, we were all kind of learning from each other and from the kids, you know, Kesey's kids were there. And so it wasn't like Kesey was, I mean, you know, we were kind of all learning from each other and I think everybody had different, uh, Bringing different yeah, things to the exactly. table. Yeah. Bring energy. You know, yeah. we had Neil Cassidy driving the bus a lot. Who had been through that some was, stuff already. Yeah. yeah. And then Ken Babs, yeah. Mountain Girl was, you know, was and still is amazing. And George Walker and Roy Seaburn and Paul Foster. And I mean, all of the different pranksters, you know, brought a different flavor to the, to the soup, you know. You sort of seek it out. You find it pretty quickly. And then all roads kind of lead to, um, to the Merry Pranksters. Oh, well, how it happened was I was playing with some guys that, uh, a band that they were friends of mine and mm. sometimes I played with them, but we had, um, we had taken this kind of very potent acid trip. Uh-huh. And then a few days later ended up, uh, taking the band down to a conference down in Monterey because our guitar player, Chip's father was the head of the Star King Theological School for Unitarian Ministers. Okay. And they were having the big Unitarian Ministers Conference down at Silamar on the beach at Monterey in the conference ground. And Dr. Wright had invited us to come down and play and, and bring the band down. And we, so we brought some gear down and drove down to Monterey and, the keynote speaker of that weekend was Keezy and the pranksters were all there with the bus and I'd never heard of a prankster and I'd never heard of Keezy and we just drove onto the conference ground and there was this brightly painted bus mm-hmm. and just sort of having come off a kind of, you know, life altering acid trip was <laughs> all kind of perfect. I talk to artists about this all the time, especially people who aren't, I mean, you, you know, you're from San Francisco, the Bay Area, especially people who are from, you know, rural areas, um, other places where there isn't a lot of necessarily creativity or culture in the way that we appreciate right. it. And to a person, everyone talks about this idea of kind of finding their, you know, their group of weirdos, you know, finding like the other People right. and you did that quite literally, though. You were there. It's not. Oh, by the way, it sounds like the Unitarians were pretty cool at the time. Um, you were there. You saw this group of people with the, this brightly colored bus, and you were like, "That's those are my people." Well, um, I went and spent the night on the beach with Kesey, and we, you know, so um, <laughs> and at that point, you know, we talked a lot about everything, and you know, the, unlike now with all the widespread use, even if it's been underground up until more recently of psychedelics, you know, there's a lot of conversation and they're kind of, there are kind of realms that can be navigated that there's some knowledge about. Mm -hmm. But in those days, you know, to actually find someone you could try and describe the indescribable to, you know, that I didn't really have that. So that's what was kind of amazing of just talking to Kesey all night was just how... You know, it was like there was no map for what 
I had been exploring on my own and trying to make sense of and trying to understand. And when, and so I had a lot of thoughts and a lot of kind of ways to try and point to something. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to articulate. It was, it still is. (laughs) As you can see, I didn't, but you know, finding Casey was, um, was deep. And I, at the end of that weekend, our, we went back to Berkeley and I was in my sophomore year at school and going to summer school, starting my sophomore year. And a couple few days later, he drove up to my apartment in Berkeley and just said, I've come to get you. You're on the bus. You left school at that point? I did. I finished a lot later, but at the time okay. I just said, okay. Did you it. ever regret that decision? No. No? No. How seriously were you taking music at the time? Well, I was writing all the time, yeah. playing guitar. And so, you know... Um, I wasn't studying music at school. Mm-hmm. I was just playing, I had, you know, all my guitars and things like that. So I was, and I was, I've always been a writer, like a songwriter. Mm-hmm. I'm a lyric, kind of lyric person. And so I'd been writing, you know, I kind of, some of my earlier things were kind of folk influenced, you know. The timing's uh, right the for that. Right, yeah. Civil rights yeah. movement, because when I was in high school, um, I used to, I was the only like high school member of the Stanford Folk Music Club when I was in high school. And, and a lot of those people had, well, a number of them had been in the South for Freedom Summer and okay. they'd been doing voter registration. And for somebody in high school, I got some pretty direct transmission from people who were, you know, seniors, Field graduate students, Appalachian. And, you know, more, no, yeah. not so much music, really, yeah. but just more like what it was really like for them in the South mm. when they were, you know, and so, you know, and what it was like, you know, what, you know, if you grew up in San Francisco at sure. that time, especially me being a little white girl, you know, I, you know, I'd never been to Mississippi or Alabama and to hear them talk, talk about what life was like for people there, for people of color there. Right. So that, you know, did, like, got my heart, you know, so I write about civil rights and things like that. Did Just, you end up going down there? And I didn't. You didn't. At that time, no, then I you know, ended up getting yeah. on the bus. So. <laughs> <laughs> you made it, you, you took a, a slight thing. diversion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of actually pursuing music, I don't know if professionally is the right word. I don't know how seriously you take ideas like that when you're 18, 19 year, years old anyway. Um, but it, you know, seeing what was happening in San Francisco at the time must have been pretty hopeful. Well, you know, that was all just starting. I mean, because this is like we're talking 64, 65. Mm. So the people that, you know, a little bit later. Sure. So you Dylan know it. was just sort of, yeah. Right. The Beatles were just starting to. Right. And so, and the, the kind of this, what turned into the kind of the San Francisco sound yeah. here, a lot of those people were coming out of the folk world, you know, the Jefferson airplane, you know, you know, Yorma was kind of coming out of blues and David Freiberg and Quicksilver, those, you know, David was kind of coming out of a, a more folk background. Yeah. And, and you, so, knew, you knew the Moby Grape guys. I, I played with yeah. those guys when they first, they were, you know, they weren't from here. They were from Seattle and they had, they moved down here in the like 60, probably 65, 60, yeah, 65. And they, um, they were pretty well known in Seattle. They, yeah. they were called the Frantics and they, they were great musicians and they came down here and, um, I ended up joining three of them and we, and we called our band the Luminous Marsh Gas, and um, uh-huh. we played for some months. And then I just, I we were living down the peninsula, and I was just like, and there was just sort of something else that I wanted, a much more kind of psychedelic approach. Yeah. And um, so the keyboard player from there, Charlie or Chuck Stakes, Charlie Shoning, and I and my friend Merlin Winter, Martha Winter, and and I left that band and came up to San Francisco and got an apartment in the Hay, right off by the Panhandle. You were just. In bands, pretty much right out of the gate? I was the last one to meet the rest of the band members, and that was on New Year's Eve, 1966, turning into 1967. It's a pretty momentous occasion. Mm-hmm. And um, they had already started just playing together and jamming, but yeah. nobody really kind of, at that point, it was totally... Say, I mean, they were talking about being a band, but I would say it was loose. It was yeah. pretty loose. And then I, I joined started playing with them and then it just I was working at Fantasy Records at the time and um I just sort of and I'd already made a single I'd made a record a year, the year before so I I sort of had more experience in mm-hmm. the music world in that way and 
we started practicing at Fantasy Records. And then John Fogarty, who also worked there, his band was, was the Gollywogs. And yeah. so we shared the alternating nights in the studio. Max, Max, who owned Fantasy at the time, let us, you know, he'd take, their band would take three nights a week and we'd take the other three nights a week. And so it was a, Fantasy was a very small label then. And, um, and John and I were the only young people who worked there. And then there was three partners and one other person. So. Whatever happened to that Fogarty guy? Did he did he go anywhere? Yeah, you know, <laughs> no. he just wrote a bunch of great songs and disappeared, you know? Were you taking it a little more seriously than the rest of the band members at the time? Well, I think I think by the time we really started playing together yeah. and we started practicing at Fantasy and we started, I mean, all kinds of things happened really quickly for us. And I think the, when we got together, then it just kind of, we gelled and yeah. um, everybody was ready to go on the journey. Then we got some support. You know, originally from from Max, who helped us rent some better equipment than what we had, because we mm-hmm. were, we're a, quite a motley crew of you know <laughs> funky little you know one drum or a cymbal or what, whatever it was. We didn't have much, and so we were able to rent some gear. And then, as we kept going, um, we got our first manager, Ambrose Hollingsworth, and he and his friend Leslie Scardelli made it possible for us to really get some good gear, and they. Um, we got, you know, I got to go to Sherman Clay, which was the music store down. It's like right a few blocks from where hmm. we are right now, downtown San Francisco. And um, we got to pick out the gear that we wanted. So we got um, a couple of twin reverbs and a couple of dual showman amps and big fender amps. And I got a, a beautiful Gibson Tal Farlow. And um, Diane got a really beautiful set of Ludwig drums. and um, Kids in the hand yeah. store. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like. Pretty amazing. Yeah. And that set of Ludwig drums, when we, a few months later, opened in Golden Gate Park for Jimi Hendrix, all of that gear is what he played. So you can, if you ever see pictures of that show in, in the panhandle of Jimi Hendrix, um, they were playing on our equipment. So it's a good thing we had some good equipment by then. So, so I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating about the band in hindsight is things, at least looking back, it sounds like things were coming together pr- pretty quickly. The opportunities, obviously, relatively small scene, you know, Fogarty's around there, you're playing with Hendrix not too long after that. That all comes together really quickly, and then the band just doesn't really take off beyond that. You sort of hit, you kind of hit a ceiling at a certain point. Well, we played, like those first three years, we played a whole bunch, yeah. right, and recorded background vocals for other bands that were recording here, the Airplane and Quicksilver and... Other Mike Bloomfield. So we were both playing our own music and playing a lot. Yeah. If you look at our, we have this list of all the gigs we played. It was like you were very much time. a known quantity yes, at the we time. Were. Yeah. And um, but you know the how I mean in those days, you needed to get a record deal to kind of make the next step. And the record labels that came to see the other bands that were. Kind of, you know, they were sort of the first bands that were signed, mm-hmm. you know, Quicksilver, The Airplane, you know, then Moby Grape, um, Stop with Camel, of course, Santana. But, you know, it's always hard to know. But I think because we were five women yeah, and we all sang, so there wasn't just one lead singer mm-hmm. to focus on. I think we were just sort of outside the norm of what... People that had were, you know, A&R guys from record labels that came from New York and L.A., basically. The music industry, I think, and was always sort of looking for who's the next Beatles or who's the next, you know, birds after the birds got big. They've seen a pattern that works and they look yeah, to recreate I think it. That, you know, so I think five yeah. hippie girls, all of whom sing all different kinds of styles of yeah. music because we all wrote and we had all kinds of influences. And I think, you know, if you listen to our, our record the new one, you know, that's mm-hmm. out now. It's got a lot of different musical influences. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, in those days, we there wasn't so much like the idea of genres like there is now. But still, we were, you know, we had, we, we didn't ever feel that there was anything we couldn't do if we could do it. It wasn't like, oh, well, we shouldn't do something acapella, or we mm-hmm. shouldn't make up this, or we shouldn't, you know, do some jazz tunes, like work on these. You know, it was sort of like, well... Anything that we felt we could try and, and, and give a good go at, 
It's like, why not? Uh, do you have any regrets from the standpoint of uh, having wished that you were a little more maybe commercially focused, that you were, you know, kind of sniffing around, seeing what was successful and able to no, go in that direction? we've never done that. We don't do that now. We yeah. didn't do that then. You know, I really feel that it's not my business whose hearts our music reaches. You know, we just have to play the music the best that we can, that, that we want to play and we love. But obviously you want it as many people to hear it as possible. Sure, we'd love that yeah. to happen. But what, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you put some, you put something out there and, and I'd love people to get a chance to hear it. And then maybe some of those people go, what's this? I don't, doesn't sure. do much for me. And somebody else goes, this is the music I've been waiting for all my life. Cause we've had both of those kind of responses. Sure. And some people just go, I love this. This is amazing. And those are the hearts that we're meant to yeah. connect with, you know, and, and other people, you know, somebody else is going to do that thing for them. And, so it's not like we want to play in a closet. I mean, we want to we want to share our music and reach whoever is going to resonate with it. We, you know, love to, ha- you know, have people give us a listen. Um, and then, you know, if 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 you know if we speak to them and speak to their hearts and souls, and they la- get a laugh or want to get up and dance or you know want to rock their baby, whatever <laughs> they you know if if we can reach them, then then that's who we're here to do that with. You know, I talk to a lot of bands, and they often tell me that in order for it to be successful, it needs to sort of be run like a dictatorship in that everybody needs to have clearly defined roles. And it's useful if somebody is kind of running the show, right? If there's like one person with the the vision, you guys just weren't built like that, though. You know, I mean, I'm probably the more, if somebody has to speak for the band yeah. more fully, you know, I will do that. You're quite literally doing that right yes, now. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, but I, everybody, we love everybody to, to be able to say, you know, their part and, and to answer questions. And we don't always agree on things. It's really good to have the different perspectives that we have. And, um, you know, there is not a dictatorship in our yeah. band at all. I mean, there ultimately was, though it sounds like friction. That's why the band sort of ended up splitting. Well, you know, I think we were having children by later on. Yeah. And because we didn't have a record deal, and we sort of didn't get that financial inflow mm-hmm. that, you know, that like a, a dance on an album would yeah. have given, yeah. you know, in those days. You know, we we were having to figure out childcare and how to travel and, you know, not really kind of moving to the next level financially. Mm-hmm. And it just was kind of hard. As I've said before, you know, our brother bands were having children then too, but yeah. they had wives and girlfriends, you know, who took care of the kids so they could travel. But we, you know, especially we were nursing mothers at times. We couldn't leave those babies, you know? So then we would have to like take people with us. And that, you know, that all, you know, it's hard that to play all the takes... guitar with one hand. <laughs> right. And... <laughs> Mary Gannon was like, you know, playing bass and she was like, you know, eight months yeah. pregnant, you know? Um, so I think, there was that piece of it was challenging for us. And at a certain point, I think for, uh, you know, for any woman playing, if you're a mom and if you don't have a really good support system, it's, you know, you have to make mm-hmm. some tough choices. And, you know, for us, we just, you know, we, there was just sort of no way to continue the way that we were. We would have had to either like, you know, take in that yeah. next step. And, you know, in those days, the other thing was that if you signed a record deal and this was, really common you had to basically agree to tour for like a year Mm. and you had to go do these things that i forgot there was a name for it you know it's like where you'd go into record stores and play all over the country and you know so many bands that i knew broke up doing doing those the sons of champlain you know went off and did one they came back that we're done you know you know so and that's just something when we kind of looked at even the possibility of signing a record deal how could we go tour for a year behind a record you know so those were all, and you know, touring was, I don't know that it's easier now. I wouldn't say that. The internet changes things, mm-hmm. you know, because you have to have a record to be on the radio. You have to, to be on the radio yeah. is how you get a chance to go play those larger gigs because otherwise nobody knows you. <laughs> you know, there was no internet. It was like, if you didn't have music on the radio, you couldn't just go to some other town and, and sell out a show because people didn't know who you were because you weren't on the radio. It's a mixed bag now. You can do more for yourself and everybody kind of by default does. But the flip side of it is that there's no record label infrastructure in the way there was. There's no big machine to support you. Exactly. So you have to do yeah. it all. So it, it sounds like you 
stuck it out a little bit longer though than the rest of the band members. You you were playing for you 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 were you were playing in the band a little while longer, right? Well, we I would say really uh, Mary Ellen left and went up to um nor- way northern California, and she and her her husband and some we're talking Tim like from Eureka area. They were up in um. Trinity Alps, and I now that she lives in Weaverville, which is, okay. you know, we're going to go. I don't know where that is either. I just, like, north. But I'm picturing north. something when right. I think of the word Weaverville. I have yes. a very specific picture in my right, brain. Right, exactly. We're yeah. going to go play there in a couple okay. of weeks. Yeah. On a farm of some kind, No, probably. we're actually playing a, a, big, okay. a theater, okay. and we're doing it as a benefit for the Humane Society right. there. So that's, we're excited um, to go to Mary's hometown. Marla left. Mary Ellen had already gone. And so Diane and Mary Gannon and I kept playing mm-hmm. for some period longer. And sometimes when our husbands or boyfriends or our drum teacher, Jerry Gunelli came and played some shows with us. But, you know, by then it was, you know, we were kind of slowly uh, dissolving, but, you know, we still love playing. And then I, I moved to Kauai. Actually, I went to Kauai thinking I was going to be there for not too long. And then I stayed and then Mary, Mary Gannon followed me. So we lived there. Well, she still lives there with her husband and and uh, kids and grandkids, and I live there part time now. When the band was officially done, did it feel like you were done with music? Oh no, never. No one was ever done with mm. music. Everyone has played their whole lives. How, how did that manifest itself at the time? How did you keep playing? Um, when I got to Kauai, I played in a number of bands there. Sometimes with Mary Gannon. She had a bunch of children, so she was a little less available. Mm-hmm. Um, but I played in a number of different bands and um, also played Hawaiian music. Like more, uh, I got really into Hawaiian music with my ex-boyfriend and slide guitar and th- that he, whole. I, pl- I ended up playing dulcimer with his slack key guitar, and um, but he was raised on Oahu and yeah. played. You know, had lots of gigs, and so I got really fell in love with Hawaiian music. Somewhere in there, like around 1980, I shifted from guitar to bass. I was playing with a, a country band, actually. Hmm. Some friends of mine were starting a he was starting a country band and in Hawaii, in Kauai, yeah, which was popular. You know, there's a um, there's a real link between first of all Hawaiian yeah. music and country, and then also there's a paniolo or, or you know the kind of cowboy scene. There's a lot of huh. great Hawaiian music that's that's also related to the ranches because there's a big connection with pedal steel, yeah. lap steel, and that kind of harmony. So country. And then there's, you know, Kauai and all the islands have rodeos and have ranches. You know, um, the, the biggest ranch is on, on the Big Island Parker Ranch. But then Kauai has, where I lived, has some ranches on both the North Shore and the South Shore. I, I love yeah. that you're from you're from out West, but you had to go to Hawaii to really, like, Fallen, take part yeah. in the cowboy scene. <laughs> right, That's very true. funny. Well, I was always a horse person, too. Okay. And, but, so, but I wasn't a cowgirl. I was yeah. a jumper, you know, so so in my early days. I was, but I, I loved being around animals and that world. And that music. I mean, I'm not. I'm not at all up on country music now. But you know, Williams. I mean, and also, I love music from the kind of more um, kind of bluegrass. Mm -hmm. So we we in that band, the guys, my friend who started that band was his mother was from Louisiana, his dad was from Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So he you know brought a lot of music into my life. Yeah. But Owens was from California. So (laughs) when you start playing bass, it's a a country bass is a really good place to start. Yeah. You know, you can kind of work with those roots and fifths and kind of start to get move around on the neck and not have to do something too complex to start. So you know, from the time I started playing bass, we we were playing within. A month, I, I had a six-night-a-week gig, so, you know, I was playing a lot. There was a need for bass players, so you picked up the bass, or how did you no, make that transition? No, I, I always had wanted to play bass. I hmm. loved the bass, but Mary Gannon was our bass player yeah. in the Ace of Cups. And then when I wasn't playing with her at that point, you know, I just got the chance to kind of move on to bass. And I I, I, I love where that sits in the music, because you're kind of at the... You're kind inter- of a rhythm. Yes, Yeah. exactly. You're yeah. kind of at the... Bottom of the harmony and you're the intersection of, you know, of, har- of harmony and, and yeah. rhythm. And I love that place. And it's, it's kind of, it gets me right in a lower belly and I love the instrument and I kind of, you know, I'm kind of a, a groove appreciator. I'm not like a virtuoso kind of bass player, mm-hmm. although I appreciate them. My bass teacher is an incredible player and I love to watch what he does, but you know, I'm a pretty simple player, but I, I just love to be in that place in the music. And um, you're still taking lessons. Oh, I, yeah. What do you feel like you have left to learn? Oh at this my point? gosh, en- yeah, endless. Yeah, you know, I'm like an ant in the 
among the giants of music and my instrument, you know. You must have figured some out in, you know, 30, 40 years. I went to music school, you know. <laughs> I mean, I went, I went to music school in L.A., but, you know, no, I'm, I'm a very simple player. And, um, yeah, I love to – I mean, if, if I had a parallel life, one of the things I would do would be to go back to music school and just, just learn because, you know, I, I just feel – you know, when I got out of – the program I went to was only a year-long program. It was the Musicians mm-hmm. Institute in L.A. And at the end of that year, I was like, now I want to start school. You know, I just mm. felt like I could love yeah. to just – I'd sort of like come up enough of a level to be able to really feel like I could really get started. But sort of I couldn't do that. What was the time period when you went to school for music? Um, 83, 84. 83, 84. What was the goal? What did you hope to get out of music school? Just be a better bass player. Well, you know, because I had switched to bass in 19 19- – 80, right? So I hadn't been playing bass for that long. And then when I got into this program, I just thought I could like jumpstart this instrument, you know, my, my relationship with this instrument. And it just sort of was a time in my life where I could actually do that. My daughter had gone to, um, boarding school for, Mm. uh, in, in Palo Alto. And I, so I, and the hurricane had hit the house that we were living in. And I was just like, okay, I could actually do this. We were talking about this before off camera, but that was literally a sign from God of being like, Hey, maybe it's time to make a transition in your life. Yeah. You never gave up on the hope or idea of being a professional musician of having played. I always played. I'm yes. And it wasn't like I was trying to, you know, take the recording world by storm or anything like that. I just wanted to play. I love playing with people. So, you know, if there's a a session, a jam session, if people want to sit around and, 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 and sing and play. I mean, that's what I've done my whole life. And I think, you know, the Ace of Cups, especially Mary Gannon and I through the years, you know, we even on Kauai when we had our families and we'd have these big family jams at, at our house, you know, we had 50 people at our house sitting around with, you know, everything from infants to elders and we'd all be singing and playing. You know, there's something about human voices together mm-hmm. and raising children where that's Kind of you're raising children in a in a circle or a container. That music is something you make. It's not something you're a consumer of. It's not something you go buy. You don't have to know a lot. You could know two or three chords on an instrument, on an ukulele or a or a guitar or a piano or whatever, you know. And you could you could sing yourself. You could sing songs that will you know rock your heart for the rest of your life with three chords. You know, um, there's just nothing that is a barrier from, I mean, it's, it's human beings. We're wired to sing together. Like we're wired to play, you know, percussion. We're wired to play music. And that all this, the studies that are being done now about happiness, like people live longer and are happier if they join their voices with other people, whether it's a church, church choir or a barbershop quartet or a, whatever it is that there's something. And if you go back to more tribal living situations, People sing together and people dance together and people dance together to rhythms. It's in our DNA to, to need that. And, you know, we just live in a, a world or a culture that, that has divided people from all of us being musicians, all of us being able to sing and play and dance. You're the person who has to sit over there and buy a really expensive ticket. And these people on the stage are the musicians. And that's one of the things going back to the acid test that no, just no, you know, we're all in this together. And there's something much more unified and communal about this process than, you know, the big stadiums and places would have us believe. How does that relate to the acid test? Well, because it was about this circuit mm. of energy and that you're not a passive observer of it, that this is something that we're all sharing. And, and I mean, I think, you know, when you go to some people's shows, even if they are in big venues, mm-hmm. you know, some people that just everybody's singing along, that we want that, you know? And I think we, I personally like, Littler venues, I like to, you know, kind of have the intimacy of that. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, one of my favorite venues is a campfire. <laughs> you know, but you know, I feel as though it's really important for us as human beings to. Well, it's not just in music. I think it's in everything. It's like people get shut down early. You know, like well, you know, the first grade teacher who says you can't draw that doesn't look like a house. Yeah, and then that person just shuts down. Yeah. You know, how many of us have been shut down in so many ways? In our creative flow, whatever that is. Our drummer, Diane, grew up in San Francisco and she's a few years older than I. So it was even a little worse and 
when she was growing up in that also she didn't have parents who kind of counteracted this. But from the time she was in grammar school and there were music programs in grammar school, middle school, and high school that she went to. Every time she said she wanted to play the drums, she would be told, girls can't play the drums. You can play a tambourine. Junior high, same thing. High school, same thing. She didn't get to get on a drum kit till she was out of high school. Even with all of the um, idealism and community, everything else that was happening in San Francisco in the 60s, was there still a pervasive sense of sexism when it came to a group of women playing together as a band? I think not so much. I think we were when we first started playing, people would just kind of stare at us. You know, we, you were a novelty. We, yeah, but yeah. we weren't a novelty. Like, oh, that's cute. It wasn't. It was just like people were just like, whoa, whoa. You know, <laughs> which is good because people were looking to have their minds blown, and you right. were doing exactly. it exactly. Right? So that you know, but it, we didn't. I mean, there were individuals who were kind of, you know, a little. But overall, the community that we were part of and, you know, lucky for us, we were in the Bay Area. Because, you know, everything was getting explored. And so, um, even though we'd never seen any all-women bands playing, when we started playing, people were like, oh, that's cool, you know. And we had people that really showed up to help us, both, you know, our managers. We had a second manager, Ron Pulte, and and then his office had Quicksilver Messenger Service and Janis Joplin, Big Brother, and, and other bands that were part of our scene and that we played with a lot. And we always felt welcomed and supported and and mentored. You know, there were certain players, you know, for Mer- both Mary Ellen and me. You know, Yorma Kalkinen from Jefferson yeah. Airplane. Yorma would just show us licks and, you know, lend us guitars. And so, you know, we had a lot of good energy from a lot of people. And that was great. I know that some women played in bands in other places subsequently and, you know, yeah. you know, didn't have that experience. And So obviously Janice was a woman that they knew what to do with. Grace Slick was a, a right, woman. They, they were fronting bands yeah. of men, of okay. guys. That's a very different thing. Yeah. You know. How much of that not being able to get to the next level was sexism and how much of it was just you just being a strange anomaly that they couldn't figure out? Uh, you know, I, I don't yeah. know that, you know, because, yeah. you know, it's hard to say, We you know, what, uh, sure. you know, I mean, we had some great shows. I mean, Jimi Hendrix loved us and, that's, you know, talked good. about us and, you know, he I was, mean, you could yeah. like not do anything else for yeah, the rest that, of your life and enough, you're like, right? we could have yeah. just retired right then. The email thread that we were emailing back and forth on was uh, attached to a press release and, and the lead thing was Jimi Hendrix said such and such 40, 50 years later, like that's still a thing that you can hang your hat on. Yeah. Because when he went back to England after that, after he came to the Monterey Pop Festival and then he came to San Francisco and he was in the, in the U.S., you know, because he'd been living out of the country, right? Even though he was American, mm-hmm. he'd been living yeah, in yeah, England, yeah. right? Yeah. So he came back and yeah. this was kind of the first time that people here got to hear him. And when he went back, he got asked by Melody Maker Magazine. So, you know, what did you, what did you like in America? And he basically at that, in that article, I think he mentioned, only Doug Somm, Sir Douglas, Sir Douglas in, in Austin. I think he was in Austin. Yeah. And us, and I think maybe Quintet, one other yeah. band, if that. Yeah. So we were kind of high on his list of who he appreciated on yeah. his travels here, which was a huge compliment because he was amazing. When people talk about Kurt Cobain, the music industry was so desperate to find another Nirvana that every time he wore the T-shirt of a band – or mentioned a band during an interview, that band would get a record label, regardless of like Daniel Johnston, for example, who, you know, is a singer-songwriter from Austin, um, deeply schizophrenic, got a record deal because of this. It didn't have quite the same effect when Jimi Hendrix said something nice about you. It was you. just early. You have to know. Yeah. It was just early time. Yeah. And I guess that was, you know, the Monterey at that point. There were a lot of people were hearing a lot of this music for mm-hmm. the first time. I mean, everybody from Otis Redding to Janice to Electric Flag to, you know, all of these bands were, were, Monterey was kind of a, a place from whence a yeah. much wider audience yeah. was then tapped into because people came from everywhere to go there. And, yeah. and, and the word got out, but you know, the word wasn't like it wasn't on the internet. So did it, um, obviously, you know, you were, you were doing some collaboration with some members of the band or, over time, but w- was there a sense that at some point the core group of women would get back together, that you would all play together again someday? Not this way. Not like it is. We all, we'd all get together through the years. We all lived in different places pretty much, but all through the years when we could afford it, because, you know, people had kids and families and 
we all lived in different places. You all still liked each other. Yes. That's good. And we if, if you had been a successful band, it might not have worked and out that way. we always feel that. Also, yeah. the fact that you're all still around is it's yeah, pretty amazing. Exactly. Upright. Vertical. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Walking. Dancing. Yeah. <laughs> Playing. Yeah. You can't look on things with too much regret because, again, you know, if things have – if you had been – I mean, Jimmy's not around. Right. You know, exactly. Probably some of our, a yeah. lot of the people you knew at the time. Yeah. And sometimes that success could have contributed to what allowed them to – you know, go in directions that killed them. The next part of the story. So you, you, you guys get together, you play, I think, was it Wavy Gravy's birthday party? Is yeah, we, such we, a good we, we played for Wavy's 75th thing. birthday. Yeah. And out of that, that was the original five of us all came together to do that. Before you sort of get into the next part, how, how quickly did it come back when – you know, the music playing together. From the time that we said we'd play for Wavy's birthday, we had, we rented a, a place for 12 days of rehearsal space and just worked on it to pull, put a set together for yeah. that event. Um, after that, so, I mean, in a certain way, you could sort of say, well, after 12 days of playing, we did a big show. Sure. Um, it, it, it took a, it took some work though to. Oh, yeah. You know, because it was like, what songs are we going to do? Sure. What, who, you know, I mean, it was, you know, what keys are we going to do them mm-hmm. in? You know, just everything, just working things. People's voices change. Exactly. Like, yeah. Right. Yes. You know, what songs kind of yeah. sort of have, you know, what songs do we still feel now? What songs we do feel, but not, we don't have time to rearrange them the way that we probably want to. So there was a lot. Did you remember most of them well enough to just oh, play yeah. them? Yeah. Muscle memory. It's just songs. Yeah. You know, just like your children. They are, but you know, you do so many over the years and some. Yeah. But I, I guess for me, that's yeah. kind of like, I, you know, I'm like, I can tell you like in a lot of cases where I was standing when lyrics came through mm. or where we were, you know, I mean, I remember that stuff a lot, you know, just kind of felt like, you know, like there was a, <laughs> a channel coming through or yeah. something. So that I don't remember like phone numbers, <laughs> yeah. but I remember yeah. Where, yeah. when it does come time to, to to take it a little more seriously you know when you're talking about actually recording really with with a label for the first time what were those conversations like with with family members were they like you know you know mothers and grandmothers at this point were they supportive yes yeah i think first of all after the wavy gravy birthday which was in 2011 mm-hmm. the three of us on mary ellen are guitarist and our drummer diane and i decided we just wanted to get together and start to play semi-regularly. And George, who owns our record label, George Bear Wallace, who had sponsored us to go play for Wavy Gravy's event, he wanted to make it possible for us to get together and just play. He thought, he was still thinking that we were going to find some other archival material because his label is a boutique label that mostly is an archival, issues, you know. Yeah. He just sort of made it possible for us to come together every you know, seven, eight weeks and spend four or five days playing and then go home and then come back. And we started writing and we, you know, we just got in and we did that for at least a couple of years. There was a collection what, around, was it 2011? No, it's 2004. 2004. Yeah. Okay. So this, this was way before all that happened, but I mean, that was kind of everything, right? That was right. everything that existed of you on pretty record. Pretty much, yes. And it was like sound checks and live shows. Yes, exactly. Like that. And that was, you know, that was Alec Palau from, um, Ace, Ace Records, yeah. coincidentally, we yeah. know the name of the label, but it's an English label, British label, and they wanted to release something of ours. And we had, you know, these reel-to-reel tapes that Mary Gannon and Diane had like slept, to, you know, from California to Hawaii and had gone through a hurricane and brought them back. You know? Yeah. So they were in whatever condition they were in, but um. So, so there was even even before you got back together for this birthday, there was some interest at oh, least. Yeah. We had a website by then, and people were writing to us, and and you know that music was sort of the first thing that you know the thing that was on the live album was you know those those recordings were made like at the side of a stage at some gig, you yeah. know, and they were made never for release. They yeah. were made basically for us to hear what was working or not working in our set so that it would be for our, our own education. You know, it's like now we just take our iPhone out to a voice, yeah. you know, voice memo and like, oh, okay. And I was listening to them on the way here just now from today. It's just listening to how the harmonies are working on this new song or working on things like that. So that was, that was the, why we had those tapes pretty much because none of them, were like in a recording studio songs that we were actually working on the way other bands did at that time, you know, just overdubbing or whatever, you know, doing laying down tracks. None of them were that. 
So, but at least it was something and that got out and, and because some people who had an interest in the music of that era heard that, one of those was George Bear Wallace, who was very, you know, passionate about the music of that time, especially San Francisco music. And when he heard that record, he kind of got fascinated with us. And that's what, so if the first record hadn't come out, the live one, we wouldn't be here talking yeah. at this point. So that was... Before you came back to the city tonight, you were in Nevada rehearsing for a six-week tour. Right. You are talking to me about the new music you're working on now. It's not a one-off, obviously. This is something you're taking very seriously now. Well, we've already got our second double album yeah. pretty much, not all the way done, but I would say three-quarters done. Once the momentum starts... Yeah, well, we, when we, once we got into the studio, once yeah. George said, okay, you need to go make, he said, after we'd been, re, you know, doing this playing for the, those couple of years that I mentioned, you know, he said, you never got to go take this music into a studio. You need to do that. So yeah. you should, let's do it. So we went from just playing to play to saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to record. And then luckily we found our producer, Dan Shea, who is amazing. He really walked us through this process because we hadn't really had, much experience we'd I mean, we'd done background vocals yeah. for people but as a band we hadn't so you know there was a lot to work with in terms of all, all this material but we have so many songs so we started we thought we were going to record 12 songs and then it went to 16 then it went to 21 and then went to 26 and you know it started to be an album and then it was a double album and it's then just it was like it's be... like it's like water pressure you know years all yes, of this backing exactly. up and then somebody opens up the spigot exactly it's like all the yeah. albums we never got to make right yeah so now we have like 36 songs down so we released 20 I'm not sure on this one because we have little vignettes on this one too. I think 21 or 22 songs plus some vignettes on the first double album. And then we have another double album coming out in about a year. You get to a certain point in your life and, you know, time obviously becomes more precious. Yes. That's why we're not going to wait another 50 years to make this yeah. the second album. Not even another 50 weeks not from the even, sound of it. Not even. You were living in Hawaii and teaching yoga. You know, you're probably in pretty good condition but you know but you never know you that never know you know, yeah and you never know you even anything. how yeah. how long you're going to be able to sort of stand up exactly. i mean you said you mentioned a six-week tour and that sounds sounds grueling to me well we'll see yeah. well, we haven't done this um so we're, we'll see how it goes yeah. we're pretty excited about it i'm excited with the two festivals that we're playing we're doing some other venues too but the two festivals we're playing the kate wolf festival at the end of june up in laytonville and then we're playing the oregon country fair and i'm camping at both of those I'm excited. Not everybody's camping. Some people are in mm-hmm. legal motels or whatever, sure. but I'm excited. Um, my my grandson and daughter are coming to Kate Wolf. And um, yeah, we're excited to be able to you know, kind of be out in community at yeah. the festivals. I'm, I'm really, and it's about like the Oregon, well, both of those festivals have people that we've known for, you know, 50 plus years as part of those festivals. I want to get back to something we were, we were talking about earlier, beginning of the conversation of this this hopefulness that you had at the time, this sense that things were changing and that that a group of people could come together and change the world. You know, obviously a lot of positive did come of that. You know, the civil rights movement, Vietnam War ended. <laughs> it's now universally accepted that it yes. was a terrible, horrible war. You know, I remember my how I felt walking around New York City the day after the election. Right. And I'm asking this for myself as much as anything else. I mean, how do you, how do you stay hopeful that we're moving that sort of, you know, I guess in kind of like um, geological time that things are generally moving in the right direction? We don't have geological time anymore as human beings. I mean, the planet's made. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, we have what till 12 years is what I was. Yeah. yeah. Not that long before. It's like that David Bowie song. Right. Five years. (laughs) I, you know, that some of the things that make, me hopeful are things like Greta Thurberg, the, the young woman in, I think she's from Sweden, you know, Thornberg, who basically single-handedly started this movement in Europe that is now here, uh, for, you know, climate, mm-hmm. for the climate. And we're, you know, when I hear young people who are articulate and committed and, you know, that, that gives me hope. And, you know, it's not even, it's like, there's no choice except for us to live the most conscious lives that we can and work for what matters. It's who I was, I can't remember whose wonderful quote it was, but you know, activism is the rent I pay for being here. You know, it's like we need to, you know, I mean, obviously there are many places to take a stand and work and you can't do 
all of it. And so you do the ones that you can do and you trust other people will pick up some of the other pieces. And Does music still feel like a venue for that for you? Totally. And you know, I mean, in these days of of women coming, women being heard, I think in ways that, you know, that over the last few years that, that women have a more potent voice or a more powerful voice, women are being Mm -hmm. listened to. And, And you know, given that I think more than sexism, ageism is an issue in our world, that we have a really unique platform right now as women in our 70s and kind of breaking up some notions of what aging is and also just making our voices heard for what matters. And, you know, there's just no alternative but to live the most conscious life that you can. I mean, you know, everybody finds their way with this, but I think we need to not kid ourselves to, you know, for me, it, it shows up. I'm a vegan. Plastic pollution is something that's a big issue for me. So I, when you can see me, I came in yeah. with my mug and my little ceramic yeah. bowl with my salad in it. You know, I mean, I travel like that. And it's sort of, and other people have the pieces of this whole puzzle that they're working with that we get, you know, we in, learn from and get informed by. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot wrong, you know, yeah. and there's a lot. I was on the phone today. We did a benefit a couple of weeks ago in Santa Cruz for a Monarch Family Services, which works with, you know, violence, tr- human trafficking, abuse. And they work both with families. They work with, in the prison with, with the abusers to try and break that cycle. I mean, they're an amazing organization. We were glad to play a benefit for them. We were honored to do that. And just meeting Casey from Monarch, she you know, she told us some things about human trafficking that I didn't really understand. You know, for example, that a lot of the people that they deal with that have been trafficked are being trafficked by their own families. That was news for me. You know, I've always thought it was like more runaways or more immigrant, you know, and there's that too. So, I mean, I feel like there every, there are a lot of ways that we all need to be working to, to make a difference and, you know, pick the ones that resonate for you. You're able to still be hopeful? Yes. Yeah, I am. And I think that things can shift. I mean, when you think that, how, I mean, like, who could have imagined the internet, you know? I mean, it's like, like, you know, and then again, who could have imagined Putin? (laughs) You know what I mean? So every sort of technology or every advance can be used for ill, but it also can be used for good. And I just feel like, you know, that sort of sense of a critical mass to make a change, that critical mass that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we have no idea what that critical mass is. You know, we don't know the, just the energy that would come together to make a shift in a positive way that doesn't look possible right now. It could be. And, and it can be. And so I'm not going to give up on life on earth. And I think that greed is a, but I think a lot of the issues of our time have to do with doing individual work and just mm-hmm. going, what is it that I really need? I mean, I, yeah. you know, like, and I think the millennials and some of the young people now are, you know, just sort of the, in the, I don't know, their prime to be, I mean, they're already sharing, like, you don't need to have to have a car. You could, you know, we could have yeah. take Ubers or we could, you know, have, you don't have to own all these places. You could just do an Airbnb or do a house trade mm-hmm. or, you know, how is it that we can share the resources and share some abundance in a more equitable way? I mean, because ultimately that's what we have to do. We have to like make this giant gap that has come about, particularly in the last 20, 30 years. We need to, you know, reverse that. And we need to find a way to, to, um, you know, all these things that people, you know, the, the, the sense of this sense of this necessity to be a consumer. I don't, you know, it's an interesting word, like all the consumers, you know, what if we just aren't consumers or what if we're like minimal consumers, you know, and we just look at how do we not consume? How do we make things and repurpose things and just not be not have this um false notion that that next thing that I could buy or own or possess is going to bring me happiness. You know, what's going to bring you happiness is singing in a group of people. You know, that's going to be, you're going to, I mean, the studies prove that. I'm, you know, it's obvious to me, but it's actually documented. You know, that's going to make you so much happier than anything that you can buy. I mean, past a certain point, yes, you need a place to live. And yes, you, you know, there's basic necessities. But at a certain point, more stuff is just a burden. It's a burden. Less stuff is more freedom and more you know, less to take care of and more time to 
play and be with loved ones and do something worthwhile on earth. So, you know, I, I am hopeful and I, I don't know that I'll, what will, I will live to see, but I feel that human beings may, we may get to the very brink, but I think wisdom will prevail. What is it? Martin Luther King say that the, the arc, the arc of the history arc, bends, yeah, towards arc justice. bends toward justice, yeah. you know, and justice is much more what we need, you know. We're all in this together. There's either we're to, we move forward together or we go down together. And this notion that I can just um, live in my little ivory tower and my whatever and I can – my kids will be okay. No, yeah. Your kids are in the same world with all the other kids, you know. So we just need to address these things together and it's more fun. Just anything we do together is more fun. There you go. That was Denise Kaufman of Ace of Cups. I recorded that one while I was out in San Francisco. Really wonderful conversation with a really wonderful band. You can check out their record, Ace of Cups. That's out now on High Moon Records. Thanks so much to her. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on Google Podcasts. We're on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, all the places to get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's RWLK at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get your R-I-Y-L related information. And that's about all we got for this week. So stick around because we're going to be back at just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 